0: to the 14th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 14. This text is really a tale of two interrogations. On one side is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. On the other is Peter, His disciple, the Son of Men. On one side is salvation for sinners. On the other is the failure and condemnation of Sinners. You have resolution versus expediency, and that's the way it will always be when you compare Jesus to people. On one side is salvation provided and obtained for us in the person of Christ alone. On the other is the best of our intentions, the best we can bring to the table and how that will always be found wanting and lacking. We need Jesus. Eventually, whether or not he's all we truly depend on for our salvation, for our preservation, will become clear. Whether or not he really is enough for us, whether we really believe what he's said and what he's promised is going to be revealed. And in the moment of pressure, when it will cost us everything, we are going to find out we do not have the strength inside of ourselves that we need in order to stand So we had better come to grips with that fact. That if Jesus doesn't stand for us, we have no hope of salvation. None. We are sons of men doomed to the same failures as all who have come before us and all who will come after us. But Jesus is the Son of Man. And in Him rests all our hope for salvation. And He is enough. So let's pray. And we'll begin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. And I thank you for this place that you've given us in which to gather. To gather under the work of Christ and under the name of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. So God, now I ask that you would cut through everything that stands in the way of hearing your word cut through in me everything that would stand in the way of proclaiming it clearly and correctly. Please help me, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit for this text and for this sermon. And God, please enable every person in this room to hear the truth of your Word and exactly what we need from it. Father, I pray is what you would give, and I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to pick it up in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows So, immediately following his arrest, Jesus is taken to the most powerful Jewish leaders of that time. In verse 53, the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, and scribes outside of the actual crucifixion itself, this is probably the most absurd and shocking moment in the earthly life of Jesus Christ. How is it exactly that the Messiah, the ruler and sustainer of the universe, the word of the living God incarnate, could be subjected to a trial at the hands of Mere men, But this was God's design by God's sovereign hand. That is precisely what happened. What we want to notice here is that there clearly is nothing to charge him with. He's not guilty of anything. His, his trial was an absolute travesty. So let's say one day that humankind got what it wanted. It can put God on trial. There wouldn't be enough evidence to convict him of anything except exactly who he has always claimed he is. His disciple Peter who promised, remember, not only to stick with him, but to die with him, if necessary, is following him at a distance in verse 54. Peter's brave enough to follow, brave enough to keep tabs on what is happening, but is also too afraid to out himself, make himself known as a follower of Jesus. So he keeps his distance with the guards, warming himself by the fire. So he's brave, but he's not willing to be uncomfortable for Christ. And in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. There was no evidence to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of insurrection, or even of dishonesty. There were no charges against him that could stick. But that didn't matter. What is true is not a part of this trial or their accusations. They had no interest in gathering actual facts The facts didn't fit the narrative. They rarely do. So they didn't matter. This is not a trial. This is a witch hunt. That's precisely what it is. The Greek here even implies they're looking for something. That they could turn into a capital offense so they could carry out their plot that we learned in fourteen one and even before to kill him. That is the goal. The truth doesn't matter. Whatever will get him killed. Right? Interestingly, Mark tells us that Jesus wasn't taken to the chamber of hewn stone, which would be the normal meeting place of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Instead, they took him to the home of the high priest Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, who was probably the most powerful Jewish person in this time period. Caiaphas held his office from 18 to 36 AD. In all that time, this is the only record of a Jewish trial being conducted at night, which, by the way, was illegal. Since they are being deliberately deceptive and the facts are not at issue, they have to hide what they're doing. They have to go about it a different way. They don't want the Jewish people to know what's happening. Or remember, they were concerned about a riot or about some type of uprising. Jewish law, by the way, also stated that no trial could be held on the Sabbath or on a feast day or on the eve of a Sabbath day. They are violating this regulation also. And these weren't the only irregularities in this trial. Old Testament law required that two eyewitnesses to the crime in a capital case had to agree on what they had witnessed or their testimony was invalid. The testimonies in the trial of Jesus did not agree. The law further required that if a criminal was convicted of a capital crime, as Jesus is about to be, the Sanhedrin had to meet again the next day to confirm that judgment. That doesn't happen either. The very reason for this law was to prevent Rash and sudden judgments without all the facts being confirmed. And it wasn't deserved or wasn't observed at all, any of these things, in the trial of Jesus. This is a travesty. When people who claim to be devoted to the law are breaking it to get what they want, we have all the evidence that we need to know they don't follow the law to honor God. That's not their purpose in being so religious. Almost everything about this hearing was a sham that flew in the face of Jewish law, which is what they're trying to convict Jesus of breaking, in a sense. They didn't crucify Jesus because they actually thought he was a blasphemer, maybe. They convicted him because he was a threat to why they did care about the law and about their system being upheld. It was the source of their power and their reputation, and most dangerously, it was the source of their righteousness. In their eyes, that makes people tyrannical. Jesus was a significant enough threat to lie and even break the law to remove. In a world where our view of what truth is is mostly subjective based on how we feel, we have to rely on deceit if we're going to get our own way. The worst thing that could happen is all the facts come out. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. The witnesses had witnessed anything criminal, so their stories don't even line up. Then members of the Sanhedrin take their turn in 57 to 59 here, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. The members of the Sanhedrin, the religious Leaders of the Jewish people bore false witness against Jesus the one who wrote the law they violated the ninth commandment from Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 not even these men could keep their story straight this is all a show that's how Jesus is going to get crucified look at verse 60 and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but he remained silent and made no answer. The refusal of Jesus to speak would have been infuriating for those putting him on trial. Lies being believed, after all, depend on one's ability to actually blur, blur the truth, blur the lines. Jesus gave them nothing to work with. But, as with everything he did, Jesus was actually fulfilling prophecy because he is the suffering servant of God. Isaiah 53, 7 reads that like a lamb being led to the slaughter, the suffering servant didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. If there was ever a time in history when a person should have been allowed to state their rights and fall back on their rights, it was this time and it was Jesus and he said nothing. Since Jesus is the truth, he also knew what was going on here he knew whatever he said, even though it was the truth, didn't matter since it would be twisted and used against him. If they didn't believe what he said and didn't believe who he said he was, if he admits who he is, which he is about to do, they're not going to believe it anyway. His silence is his response to them. When the witnesses are false, the truth doesn't matter. So now Caiaphas is beside himself. Look at the second part of 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the blessed? The blessed here is a paraphrase. You see it? It's a proper noun there. It's basically shorthand, a circumlocution for the sacred name of God. Jews often avoided saying the sacred name of God, so they would say the blessed instead. Just, you know, so he says the blessed here. We wouldn't want to be blasphemous. We wouldn't want to lack any decorum here. They want Jesus to say it, to admit he thinks he's the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, since that would surely prove to people that he was guilty of a crime deserving death. Whether he actually was the Son of God, again, that makes no difference. They aren't going to worship him. They want to kill him. Remember this. If Jesus has been telling the truth about God and about salvation, these men are out of business. Those who would peddle the law, and they're still around, they always will be. Those who would peddle the law as a means of power and reputation have to lie and manipulate and create rules. If this Jesus, the one we read about in these four Gospels and was prophesied of all, uh, prophesied of all throughout the Old Testament, if He is who He says He is, if He is the Son of God, then forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God comes by grace through faith alone. Which means even sinners, even those who can't obey, might be saved and become God's own children. It means even sinners may partake in God's promise of salvation. The law peddlers, the sin sheriffs, the power hungry have no leverage if Jesus is the truth. Not even Satan can condemn us if Jesus is the truth. So you see what's at stake here? This is the fight of human history. This will determine how salvation can be obtained if it might be obtained at all. This is the key to living forever here. This is it. This is what's on the line. All throughout his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen what is often called uh, by commentators and things, the the messianic secret or the alleged messianic secret. That uh, whenever someone realized or believed that Jesus was the Messiah and they proclaimed that, he would tell them, Not to tell anybody else, most of the time. He was trying to avoid causing too much commotion before it was this appointed time. He had things to do before it got to this. But now it is that time. There's no longer any need or any point to secrecy. So when Caiaphas asked him if he indeed was the Christ, the Son of God, in verse 61, Jesus proclaimed in verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, And coming with the clouds of heaven, meaning the Son of God is the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is the Son of God. Jesus again references Daniel 7. And notice this. First of all, Jesus calls the bluff of Caiaphas in verse 62. He also uses shorthand for God. And reminds Caiaphas that the blessed, who Caiaphas is willing to call him, is also the power God knows what these men are doing, and they will give an account. They think they're acting by their own authority. They are acting by the authority of God. The power they're using in this moment to get the Son of Man killed is nothing compared to the power that God will destroy them with if they do not repent. Once again, Jesus references Daniel 7, and the fact that the Son of Man is going to ascend Go to the ancient of days in victory and be granted all authority in heaven and on earth. And by their crucifixion of him, they are going to send him to that very place. They are, they will give him his ride to his seat on the clouds of heaven. God is sovereign over all evil. Beloved. He makes it his servant to accomplish his salvation. That's whose side you want to be on. In their lifetimes, the lifetimes of these men, the Son of Man will be glorified at the right hand of the Father. For in Daniel, He came to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. That is the coming I believe Jesus is speaking of here, the one that achieves the very enthronement these men deny. Well, the truth hurts, right? Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments. What a display. And said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Throughout the Old Testament, when someone ripped his garments, it was a a sign of profound grief or rage. Even Caiaphas is furious. He's equating Jesus' statement with blasphemy. And how could anyone be so uh, disrespectful as to blaspheme God? Well, it was all nonsense. The the Jewish law very carefully defined the sin of blasphemy. If we wanted to get technical, to be guilty of it, a person has to curse the name of God directly. Jesus hasn't done that. He hasn't blasphemed. The Jewish religious leaders, however, equated what he had said with blasphemy, even though it wasn't according to the law. Their charge was without a legal foundation. Jesus never broke the law, and that is how they sentenced him as worthy of death in verse 64. If the law of God was to condemn Jesus as guilty, it would have to be God's verdict on him for our sakes, not man's verdict on him. We are not in the position to charge God with wrong. This is what will always happen, though. When we try to improve on the law, that's what we're doing. When we add rules that aren't in the Bible to any standards that are in the Bible, what are we saying? God, you didn't go far enough. You didn't take this into account. You didn't take that into account. And when you improve on the law in your own mind, and you create laws that have to be followed so that you don't break the ones that are written down, you know what happens to you? You become very, very proud of yourself and sure of yourself. It's easy to keep the rules we make. You would think, although very ironically we're about to learn here in the next section that we can't even do that consistently. But this is what will happen when we try to improve on the law or outsmart God. We'll become so self-righteous, we won't be able to see our denial of Jesus for what it is. It's blasphemy. We're telling God He's a liar That he cannot be trusted, that his word is not true, when we deny who his son claims he is. We're not fit to create or improve then on law. We're not made for this. The knowledge of good and evil wasn't part of what we were given. Right? We took that in the fall because we thought we knew better than God. This is where it's gotten us. The law is God's. Prerogative, Beloved, it is holy and righteous and good. We don't produce that kind of fruit. What we do with the law, even the ones we make, we break it. That's what we do. Or we build new ones so that nobody sees us breaking the ones that already exist. Right? We, we love to do that as Christians. We love to make rules and standards of godliness that God didn't prescribe and keep those because then it covers up the fact that we aren't obeying. What is there, right? So you know, you know, I I won't. I would never. You know, I would never get drunk. But you'll gossip. You won't even bat an eye. You might be dishonest. You know, just fudge a little bit here, a little bit there. But I would never kill anybody. Right. I, that's one of my favorites. I'm sure I've said this before, but like just the the, the way that we love to exalt ourselves and cover ourselves i don't know why i do anytime my wife and i are watching a movie or a show or something and you have an abusive husband or an abusive guy i always say to her honey i would never do that to you when i asked my wife to i asked my wife's parents if i could ask her to marry me it was her mom and dad Christie's dad was a green beret retired thank god but he was he was a, still very scary and I, I mean that there was he there was something about it was just like man i I honestly bet that, like, he watches me sleep, and I don't even know it. He comes to my apartment, just stares at me in the bed, you know. But when I asked, I, I asked, you know, can I can I marry Christy? He, he didn't say He was clipping his toenails the whole time. I think I've told you that before, which is really unsettling when you're asking a girl's dad if you can marry her, and he's clipping his toenails. So he's not saying anything, and I keep trying to sweeten the deal. Like I, I said, you know, I promised to take care of her. He's just staring at me, clip, clip. I'm like, uh, you know, I promise I'd never hit her. And he stops. And he stares at me for about three seconds and he says, I know. <laughs> right. So in other words, think about this for a minute. Why would you why would that shouldn't even be on the table? Like you should never like when would that ever be possible that you would have to say I wouldn't do that. Right. That's just dumb to say. You, it shouldn't even have to be said. Right. I tell these stories and I have no idea where I was going and now I can't what was the point of that Oh man but I yeah so the, the the these rules we create the standards we create so that we can feel righteous and feel good beloved we 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 aren't fit for this we 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 can't behave our way into God's good graces the the the, the best we can do which is often just normal humanity. You have to be a psycho to beat your wife, right? That, so in other words, there's nothing to brag about. Congratulations, you wouldn't beat your wife. That's, that's wonderful, right? That's, you should not even have to say it, but that's what we do. This is how I know I'm good. Do we realize what God requires, what the law requires of us? We break it. We create standards we can meet to cover the fact that we don't meet His standards. We need a Savior who is perfectly obedient, to stand in our place. That's what's happening here. Everything you and I need is on the line here. Everything. But they add insult to injury, or injury to insult, I should say, in verse 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. In Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6, the prophet wrote that, The Lord God has opened my ear. This is the servant speaking. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So truly, literally, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But there was another interrogation taking place that night. We pick it up in 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Being from Nazareth is what that means. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Because what she said was so confusing, right? And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. While Jesus was being interrogated upstairs in the house of Caiaphas, his disciple Peter was being interrogated downstairs in the courtyard. But the officer presiding over his proceedings wasn't a ruler of the Jews. It wasn't even a noble in the community or one of the Sanhedrin. It was a servant girl. In 66, she had no status in that sense, no power, no authority. So there's no reason for Peter to be intimidated, right? But in 67... And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. So he denies Jesus the first time, and the rooster crows once. Remember what Jesus had told him back in verse 30 of this very chapter. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The text doesn't tell us Peter even noticed If he did, the first crow, but it does tell us after one confrontation he moved to what he thought would be a safer position. But she saw him again in verses 69 and 70. And he denied again that he knew Jesus or had been one of his company. In the second part of verse 70, and after a little while... The bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So the third time he denied Jesus, he tried to emphasize it, back up, guarantee his word by swearing or cursing. We all see this when you're not being believed, you add in toppings to your words so that people will believe you. Kids are phenomenal at this. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. It was, you know, right? That, that's what we do. There, there's no authority behind our words. You have to justify them. He might have just used crude language. It's more likely, however, he uttered some kind of solemn oath. I swear in the name of God. I don't know the man. Jesus had been convicted of blasphemy upstairs, and was innocent. And blasphemy is actually being committed downstairs. But that man's not on trial. And in verse 72, immediately after this third denial, the rooster crows for a second time. That's when Peter wept. When he remembered what Jesus had said, it was then he contemplated what he had done and he broke down and wept. In the book of Matthew 5, verse 37, Jesus is talking about the purity of one's intentions when speaking. When he told his disciples, let your yes be yes, And your no be no. May your your word be so reliable that there's no need for you to swear that you're telling the truth. Or to promise you're not lying. There's no need for that. Let your word be so pure and true that there's no need for any of these extra toppings to believe you. But unlike Jesus, Peter wasn't telling the truth. He did know Jesus. Of course he did. He had been with him for three and a half years. And he had promised just a little while ago couple hours ago, not to fall away, even if all the rest of the disciples did. And they did. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, he said in verse 31. And look, he's the only one following at a distance that we read about. Beloved, this is the difference in this text between our words and the words of Jesus. Listen, I have no doubt that Peter meant it when he said it. I think that's what makes it so heartbreaking here. We aren't judging him. This is us. Right, He meant it when He said it. He didn't have the ability to keep His promise. He's a Son of men. He's not the Son of Man. Jesus did have the ability to keep His promises. Notice how easily authority can be gained in this world. Notice how easily you can get it in your hands. All a person needs, no matter who they are, they could be a servant girl, is the leverage of knowing better than you do what is true, right? What the facts are. She had no authority whatsoever in Peter's life until she had something to hold over Peter's head. Now she might as well be the executioner herself. Peter has to run from her. He has to hide from her. He was taken to trial and tested. His big fight came. His big moment came where, will you keep your promise or not? That didn't come at the hands of Roman soldiers. It didn't come at the hands of the Sanhedrin, whom he expected to have to fight. He thought he was up to that challenge. He was taken to trial by a servant girl and some bystanders trying to keep warm. And he folded because he was afraid of the truth and what it would mean for him. If he admitted it, Jesus possesses all authority in his person. He is the son of man. So when he is interrogated and put to the test and is beaten and mocked and spit on, he can very simply state the truth. No fluff, remain quiet because he has no need to protect himself from anything. Right? That's, that's what it is to know. Your delight is to do the Father's will. What is there to fear? That is how committed He is to His Father's will. We fold when our security is threatened in the least little bit, regardless of what our intentions are. Jesus never folds. We are sons of men. He is the Son of Man, the one to whom God will give all authority in heaven and on earth at His own right hand. Jesus could have claimed his rights here. Again, couldn't he? He could have taken advantage of the law itself very easily to defend him, to make this stop. This proceeding is illegal. You you don't have the right to do this. The, The testimony of the witnesses doesn't match. It's a mistrial. This isn't how a lawful trial should be conducted. He said nothing. He opened not his mouth. What if you and I are put on trial? What's the first thing we're doing? Defending ourselves. Claiming our rights. Why? Well, because we have them. So did he. That's not how you determine what you do. I have the right. No, but Jesus had the right. That's not how we determine what we do. We belong to this man. We determine what we do based on what God has revealed. Salvation is more important in this moment than his rights. So he doesn't defend himself. When we're brought on trial for our faith, I hope we aren't thinking, well, I'm going to claim my rights. Your rights are not, your preservation is not required in that moment. The proclamation of the gospel is required in that moment. We are not Americans anymore, beloved. We are Christians who happen to live in America. We are way too passionate about our citizenship on earth than we are about our citizenship in heaven. That can wait, right? No, nobody wants to hear that. I know. I know. We're obsessed with defending ourselves and preserving ourselves and making sure everybody knows. Well, I, I love hearing people talk like that. I love it because we, we we all do it. When I I say something, right, man? If I notice it, I'm saying something. It's my right. I I. It's just. It's like man. It, You ever heard of the trial of Jesus? He opened not his mouth. Why? Because he was, he didn't have the right? Yes, he did. So why didn't he open his mouth? Because salvation was more important than anything else. Obtaining eternal redemption was the reason for which he was sent by the Father. And no matter what was threatened, he was not going to yield. He is the polar opposite on purpose in Mark's story of Peter. That Peter is probably telling to Mark as he writes. For Jesus, when it was time to put his money where his mouth was, when it came to his promise to submit to the Father's will, the Son of Man succeeded when at the very same time, the very same night, the very same scene, a Son of Man failed. That's what we do. We always have. We could be in a garden Without a sin nature, with everything we need at our disposal, and no death threatening us, and we will still pick our own way over God's. That's who we are. That's it in our DNA right now. And if you're redeemed, praise God, the Spirit lives in you, but you are still also flesh. And your flesh wages war against your soul. And the primary way it does that's not even talking about the devil. It's talking about your flesh This wages war with my redeemed soul. And how does it do that? Normally by telling me what Satan did. Did God really say? Right. Verse 72 then serves simply to remind us again that Jesus is always right. The quote comes back in, but we knew it. We just heard it. Earlier in the chapter, we know that Jesus said that. It's still ringing in our ears. Why does He say it again? To remind us that when Jesus speaks, it is the truth. He's always right. In other words, we come to the end of chapter 14 realizing that Jesus' insight into us and what we're actually capable of will always be more accurate than our assessment of ourselves and what we're capable of. We need Jesus to lay us wide open for what we are because only Jesus has the ability, the authority, and the will to save us. Beloved, there's nowhere. I want you to notice the wording there. Peter is following Jesus at a safe distance. Right? Oh yeah, that's my Lord, that's my Messiah. But you know, I want to to make sure I can cut ties and run if I need to. Right? There's nowhere in heaven or on earth that we will be safe from what it will cost us to truly believe in Jesus. This is what the world thinks of Jesus in His message right here. They're going to think it of everyone that bears His name, everybody that believes Him. There's nowhere you can go where you're not going to bump up, you and I, against the world or the flesh or the devil. Peter couldn't have gotten far enough away or warm enough by any fire to avoid making a stand when it came to his belief about Jesus. There, there's, there's nowhere to go in this world. The secret is out. There is no safe distance from Jesus. Jesus. There is no safe distance from Jesus. None. There's nowhere you could both follow Him and safely preserve your life and all that you want in this world. There's, there's nowhere you could follow Jesus and preserve all your rights. I, I think that might be, if we got underneath our own insides of what's going on. It, it's very easy to talk about whether or not you die for Christ when you're not being threatened. Right? You can't follow Jesus and preserve all your rights. You, you, you can't do this. So eventually, whether or not you really believe in him is going to come out, right? And it, it, look, it doesn't just come out when you're being threatened with death and with jail. It comes out when you don't get your way in like a business meeting. Yeah, it comes out when a friend doesn't hit like on your post. Or doesn't respond to something that you did the way that you wanted them to. Or isn't as happy about something as you are. It's, it's going to come out. It's, it's going to come out when you hear gossip. It's going to come out when you're tempted to speak it. It's, it. it's you are going to bump up against Jesus at some point in your day. Beloved so whether or not we're actually following him or keeping a safe distance. I want to claim him But I don't want to follow him. That's going to come out. There's there's no way we can avoid that It's going to come out when we're tempted to cheat on our taxes. It's going to come out when we're tempted To hurt someone to lie to someone to it's going to come out. He has all authority There isn't a place to go where you're outside the sphere Of accountability to Jesus There's nowhere to go There's nowhere where our safety is guaranteed If we're with Jesus There's nowhere our comfort Is constant if we're going to follow Jesus There's nowhere that all our rights Whether the government gives them to us or not Can be preserved if we're going to follow Jesus At some point those things will have to be given away We'll have to give up our rights. We'll have to forego safety. We'll have to forego comfort. So at some point, in some situation, big ones or little ones, it could be the Sanhedrin, it could be the Romans, it could be a servant girl. At some point, whether or not you believe this is going to be on the line. So the question is not, do I have the will? The question is, what do I believe about this Jesus? Eventually it's going to come out that you belong to him. And in a world of lies, it's going to cost us to follow the truth. There's no way around this. Eventually, we're going to have to make a stand. And no matter what we say, beloved, we have three main priorities in our hearts right now that I believe come out in this text for a reason. And our perspective in these three things is actually giving us the answer now of whether or not we'll stand then. Our rights, our safety and our comfort. Those three things matter than anything else. Staying far enough away from Jesus then, and also at the same time managing to stay warm. After all, we deserve that. We, we may not want to deny Him. We may not want to fold under the pressure of the world's questions and interrogations and the temptations of the evil one in our own flesh, but what we believe will determine what we do When it comes out that we belong to Jesus, Peter forgot who Jesus was. He forgot who he was being accused of being with. He forgot who that was. We will need faith to stand, and faith is a gift. It is not the fruit of our wills or our promises, beloved. If we're going to stand, we're going to have to believe what Jesus said we needed to be saved. Faith. And I don't mean some force of supernatural positivity. I mean the gift of God that enables us and causes us to believe his word is the truth. Again, Peter forgot who Jesus was. He failed to remember who it was he'd been following, who it was he's being accused of knowing. Jesus, the one you were with, is the Son of Man. Well, what does the Bible teach us about the Son of Man? Peter, what would you be afraid of if you're His? If you really believe that's who He is, what didn't Peter believe here? Because that's why he denied. turns out that after all this time following, all this time listening and believing he didn 't actually have faith in Jesus to save and keep him. he just had an association with Jesus. Jesus was very interesting to him and at times advantageous to him. Faith in Jesus and association with Jesus are two very, very different things, very different things. most American Christians this is what we tend to value those three things I mentioned earlier. we just do we 're convinced there unalienable rights and they all three appear in this section of Mark's gospel they're setting us up wanting those things more than anything else trusting that salvation comes through those things sets us up to be Peter when the hard questions come and not Jesus that is our rights our safety and our comfort if we cling to any of these we will not stand we will not stand well, i just supposed to be trampled on. I don't know. Jesus was. You being trampled on would be the end. It's not. It wasn't for him. It won't be for his people. I'm not saying there's never a time. I mean, we see Paul do it in Acts. When the time is right. Why? Why did... I mean, you can take advantage of these things at times, but beloved, we don't live and die by our rights, by the need... For safety, the need for comfort. The only way you need those things, actually need them, is if this world is your home. And if that's what you believe, then you will do everything to stay here. Do we understand how much danger we're in on a daily basis of not believing what we say we believe? Beloved, at some point, who Jesus was when He was here... And what he says it means to follow him is going to conflict with our desire for those three things. Our rights, our comfort, and our safety. And we could probably add to that list or change it or whatever. But here it seems to be those things. We are sons of men. It is in our nature to protect those three things at all costs. But we don't need... What the world can only offer us, but doesn't have the ability to provide. The world is actually unable to preserve your rights. Your and my rights are at the will of whoever's in charge at the given moment. And whoever has the bigger army and the better weapons. That's how fragile our rights are. Our safety. You could be the best driver in the world and wear your seatbelt and mind all the signs and the speed limits and do everything right and have your hands at 9 and 3 or 10 and 2 when I was in school, right? When one, was it going to be 6 and 12? I don't know, right? You can do all that. If the guy coming down the divided highway crosses the median and hits you head on, you're probably not going to make it. Our safety, beloved, is for the most part a sham. Our comfort, how hard is it to find genuine comfort without fear, without anxiety, we don't, the world can't give us these things. Only Jesus is the son of man. Only Jesus holds all power and authority. Only Jesus keeps his promises. Only Jesus never fails. You can't follow him from a distance. Going in and out of allegiance to him and self-preservation. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Beloved, it is a question we need to ask ourselves. Why would we think when the pressure's actually on, As to whether or not you will believe in Jesus That we would stand When the pressure's on As to whether or not I'll do what Jesus said When it comes to things like gossip That I give in What makes me think When I'm not going to die for what I'm doing That I'll stand when I am going to die For what I believe Our wills are insufficient Jesus is the only way Safety comes only from being hidden in Christ. That's the only safe place to be in the universe. Comfort comes only from knowing that no matter what happens, he will not leave us, he will not forsake us. That's the only way to achieve actual comfort. And we give up our rights because we no longer need them. Our lives are in His hands. We can't simultaneously preserve ourselves and follow Jesus. And we keep trying to find a way to walk the line. And beloved line walkers fall off when somebody shakes it. Our self-allegiance plays itself out every day. That which would result in us compromising when the pressure is on is the very things we coddle all the time. My way, my voice, my preferences, my opinions, my rights, my safety, my comfort. Protect these things at all costs. Even the cost of following Jesus. We will forget what the Bible teaches us in one second when we want our way more than God's way. That kind of authority, the kind we get by clinging to ourselves and to our own agendas so that we run our lives rather than submitting to the authority and the promises of Jesus will only fail us because that authority isn't based on the truth. And authority not based on the truth is as fragile as this sham trial in Mark 14. Until we truly believe that safety and comfort come only from Jesus, until we stop trying to stay close enough to look the part, but far enough away for it not to cost us our lives. We're not ready to stand. And eventually, in the small things or the big thing, we have to make a stand. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can preserve us. In Him we're safe from depending on anything the authorities of this world can give to us or take from us. Because actual authority belongs to To Him, we must forsake ourselves. And I could end the sermon right there. So who's going to do it? Who's going to forsake themselves? All I would be doing if I give the invitation right now is telling you to believe yourself. That'd be it. Who wants to come and make a fresh commitment to Jesus? Rededicate. My favorite biblical word. Because it's not in the Bible. Rededicate your life. Again. Again again or rededicate my life again like didn't we do that enough at youth camp like just right just just keep using the same empty words right i promise jesus i promise jesus i promise jesus this is what our promises do make us guilty times two we must forsake ourselves yes and we can't And Peter shows us that even when our intentions are good, and we have made the promises, and we do mean it, we can't do it. So this isn't a challenge this morning to get tough and get serious and commit and then stand. The ability to stand is not in you or I. This sermon is an invitation for you to crumble at the feet of Jesus and admit you need Him to do everything for you. Or you will not be saved. And every believer in this place needs to do that as much as every unbeliever in this place needs to do it. Beloved, we must come to Jesus. We must surrender to Him because only Christ holds fast. Only Christ. Only Christ. He was subjected to what He did not deserve so that you and I could be given what we would never earn.